if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be behind me on the screen. But John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. It's a long passage, so bear with me. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the, into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where will you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks of this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband. The woman replied, Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim? where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am Messiah. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to the woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? 
And why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, uh, a familiar story to many of us here tonight, and yet so many levels of depth. I pray, Lord, that you would open all of our minds here tonight to see you, and in seeing you, that our hearts and our minds, our spirits, in light of your truth, that we would worship you here tonight. And it's all this that we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, since the title of today's message is Jesus is not part of my worship, and you would think that as the worship pastor of Genesis, that I am the final authority on all things worship here, right? And if you believe that for the next 30 minutes, then I will allow you because it will grant more ease to the argument that I'm presenting here tonight to you. Or maybe you think that this is going to be a great lesson in worship music, perhaps. And believe me, no doubt, I can talk to you, talk your ear off about worship music. But to be honest, praise music, what we do up here on stage, is an outward expression of an inward reality, of a heart that is captured by God. Without our hearts and without our minds captured by God, without worship, music is just music. So I wanted to talk to you guys today about what the Bible teaches us on how we are to worship. And the Bible teaches us that Real worship happens in spirit and in truth. And but here is the irony. Here's, this is the irony. The truth is that you actually don't need me up here telling you about worship. Every single person in this room is already an expert at worship. Whether you're aware of it or not, you know everything there is to know about worship. And what I mean by that is that we are beings that are created, who are designed in our creation to long for the creator. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So the Bible teaches us that we all have weaved into our DNA this longing for eternity. But then notice how the verse also says, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And what does this mean? Well, Basically, if you guys were here uh, a couple weeks ago, if you remember, remember Michael's rope illustration, the rope basically represented 
our entire lives. And then there was this green piece of tape on the rope that represented uh, where we are right now in the span of our life. And so basically what I mean by that is we live as finite beings only see the present because we live in the present. And with regards to worship, most people, whether you're a Christian or not, will live only for the present. And so today and tonight, I want to share with you guys that there is a crisis of worship happening. Because many people today aren't worshiping toward eternity, but instead for what's right in front of us. All these things that the Bible says will soon pass away. So the big question tonight is, what is worship? What is it? And if you just look up worship in the dictionary, it simply means reverence offered toward something of extreme worth or value. Another way of saying it is simply, worship is worth-ship. And uh, have you guys ever seen that show or shows like it, like Pawn Stars or Antiques Roadshow? Um, a lot of people, including myself, will watch this show uh, to see that, that one guy, right? That one guy who comes into the, to the shop and he's got this priceless item. I mean, it is worth over a million bucks. And he comes in and he's like, Okay, I have this item right here. It is the dinner fork of Abraham Lincoln, the night that he became president with a speck of food still on it. And so gives it to the appraiser. The appraiser looks at it for about, you know, three minutes or so, and he's like, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is a fake. But it's a really old fake Therefore, it's still worth about $1,000 or so. And then the camera goes on the guy's face for about a minute, and he's just in utter disbelief, disappointment. I cannot believe what you're telling me right now. And he storms out. He's like, I'm going to get this appraised somewhere else. <laughs> and you as the viewer, right, as you're watching the show, you can understand the disappointment because his expectation was this, and then it got dropped down to this. But... I mean, honestly speaking, if, if I were to come to you and be like, hey, I'll give you $1,000 for some of your old dinnerware, I mean, who would not jump at that deal, right? Who wouldn't say, of course, I'll take that. But then sometimes someone will come in with this ragged old piece of art, right? And they bought it from a garage sale because it's always, they always buy it from some kind of garage sale. And... They store it in the attic because they don't like it anymore. They think that it looks terrible like some child drew it. And they bring it in and they try to pawn it for a couple of dollars. And so the appraiser looks at it. And he, he looks at it again. And then he, then he calls his assistant over to look at it and then to confirm that this piece of artwork is actually an original Priceless, priceless, and the camera's on the person who brings it in. 
and their position changes immediately toward this once old painting taking up space in the attic to now this item of immeasurable worth. And then you see the tears well up in that person because now they can pay off their mortgage and their life has changed forever. True worship or worth-ship is when God's truth changes our position toward him and as a result, we attribute ultimate value to him and to him alone. Jeremiah the prophet prayed this prayer. He said, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You can only pray that kind of prayer if your heart is positioned to give God ultimate worth. But on the other side, if your heart is positioned to anything other than God, then his worth will always be less, lesser than our latest obsession. This transfer of ultimate value from where it should have been to God to lesser things is what theologians like St. Augustine, C.S. Lewis would call sin. And from our passage today, we see this battle for worship happening. And like us, the Samaritan woman has her heart set on many things other than God. So, Jesus so graciously challenges her to turn her worship from what's right in front of her to worship, worshiping real worship in him. And so tonight I wanted to go over four points with you guys. And this is where we're going in showing all of us here that Jesus is not part of my worship. So point is all of it. He is my worship. And so point one is this. Real worship meets us in everyday life. Point two, real worship satisfies. Point three, real worship has all of me. And four, real worship is above one's faith. So one is real worship meets us in everyday life. Two, real worship satisfies. Three, real worship has all of me. And four, real worship is a bubbling spring. So point one, real worship meets us in everyday life. The first thing that the Bible wants us to understand is that worship is not just confined to four walls in a church building or a warehouse, um, but that it also happens in everyday life. The Bible shows us a picture of Jesus on his way to Galilee, and he's tired, he's sweaty, he's thirsty. And then he passes through Samaria, uh, Samaria, which he intended to, and he finds himself at Jacob's well. And it's on this place along his journey in everyday life where Jesus decides this, this place is where I'm going to teach the entire world about worship. Now, normally, every meeting that Jesus has had with somebody in the Bible was unique. 
but most commentators agree that this meeting, this particular meeting, was very unusual. And that's because historically, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. The Samaritans were descendants of Jews from the northern kingdom who intermarried with Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so the Samaritans were, were seen as unclean in a largely monoethnic culture. But not only that, but because of the intermarrying and the cultures meshing with one another, the Samaritans were confused religiously. They had rejected Yahweh, and they created their own system of belief with many gods, and they built their own temple on top of Mount Gerizim. The Bible also says about this woman that she came alone to the well under the noonday sun or the sixth hour, depending on what version you read. Now, women typically would come to draw water, but they would always come usually in the morning or in the evening when it was cool. And women usually came together as well with other women and would converse along the way. So gathering water was kind of this so daily social activity. This Samaritan woman, however, came during the worst part of the day when the sun was directly above her. It was the hottest part of the day, and she came not with other people, but she came alone. And so most scholars would agree that this woman was actually a social outcast. John, in the beginning of this story, clearly wants us to know that there is a huge divide between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Because they were, in fact, opposites of one another. Racially, she was looked down upon while Jesus was elevated as a Jew. Religiously, she was confused. Jesus was considered a teacher and a prophet. Gender-wise, she was a Samaritan woman. Jesus was a Jewish man. Socially, she was alone and an outcast. Jesus was largely revered at times and followed by crowds almost everywhere that he went. She was an outsider among outsiders, Jesus was the ultimate insider. And yet, this meeting could not have been more perfect in the eyes of Jesus. And because of these polar opposites of one another, the other thing that John wants us to know in this story is that this meeting was an act of complete grace. Jesus, from a very high position, reached down to the Samaritan woman in a very low position. And so for us tonight, this is incredible, amazing news for us. John is telling us that no matter how far away we think we are, and no matter how far away we actually are from God, he can always reach us. Isaiah 59.1 says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. This, friends, this is amazing grace. The unmerited gift of God. Jesus says in verse 10 of our passage tonight, 
that if you only knew that what I have for you is a gift, a gift by definition is completely dependent upon the hand of the giver. And like the woman, the gift that God offers us breaks all barriers, whether the barriers were placed upon us, whether the barriers were ones that we stacked up to block other people out and to block God out. Jesus always meets us right in the middle of everyday life, right in the middle of our mess. This is grace. And this is where real worship begins. Any other worship that does not stand on the foundation of God's grace is not true biblical worship. It's a partial worship. It's a partial truth, which is like having no truth at all. And so if we go back to Isaiah 59, what we just read in verse 1, and then we add verse 2 to it, this is what it says. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not see. God is always reaching for us. He's always able to hear and he always listens but when we turn our worship to other things we lose the ability to see god and to be heard by him and so so was the iniquity of the samaritan woman which leads me to my second point real worship satisfies in verse 11 she says but sir You don't have a rope or a bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And Jesus says in verse 13 and 14, anyone who drinks of this water will soon become thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. In the Bible, Jesus often uses, um, Jesus often comes into the lives of people in the midst of their perceived needs to show them an even deeper spiritual need. But in this case, the physical need of water, I mean, it was there. It, it was really there. Um, they, were, they didn't have running water. They didn't have a faucet to draw from. People still needed to travel to gather water. And you got to remember, you're in a place like Samaria, right? Dry, arid, desert. So you can imagine that the danger was real of death by dehydration. It was right in front of your face. And Jesus knew that too. He lived in that time period and in that area. He himself came to Jacob's well, physically tired, physically thirsty. But he also knew the heart of this woman before he even met her. He used her physical thirst to point her toward an even deeper spiritual thirst but she couldn't see it she only wanted water for one more day but Jesus still wanted her to know that that well this well could never offer her what he could and that was living water now if you guys have ever been to a well or seen a well I mean, you know it's a pretty cool construction. It's a structure designed to go deep into the ground. 
and to draw water out from underneath the ground. It's a structure created by man that you continually work to draw your bucket down or to pump water out, right? But in contrast, a spring is nothing, there's nothing constructed to get the water. The water comes to you above ground from an overflow from within and it keeps pouring out. You try to put something on top of it, you try to build something on top. I mean, that's foolish because the water keeps coming out. It's not going to stand. You don't need to construct anything. It just is there for you and keeps coming. In what we worship, if Jesus is not the spring of water for us, then the question is, what is the well that we're running to? For some of us, it might be finances. For others, it might be family. Still others, it might be relationships or entertainment or status. There's this endless amount of wells that we can run to. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you know, it may offer you temporary satisfaction, but you're going to have to keep coming. You're going to have to keep drawing from that well to be satisfied. And these things, these wells might be good things like family and friends and security, all good things. But are they the ultimate thing? And you have to ask yourself, is the well that I'm drawing from, is it life-giving or is it life-taking? And the ever-important question, will that well ever dry up? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says this. It says, the world is fading away along with pleases God that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases the will, pleases God, will live forever. What happens when the things or the people that we hold highest eventually fade away over time? What happens when we make a bad deal? Or, we, or there's a bad decision that's made. Or there's a loss, a tragic loss. And I say these things not to strike fear into people's hearts, but to objectively say that Jesus is the only one who can guarantee water to our souls that will last forever. If we keep drawing from the well of money, for example, we're, we'll never feel like we've had enough. We'll never feel like we've saved enough. If we draw from the well of beauty, we'll never look good enough. We'll only bow, only if we bow our hearts to him in worship, will we be satisfied. So the question is, what is it that you hold highest in your heart of highest value? Can you bow down to this? whatever it is in your heart for all of eternity. And so point three is real worship has all of me. So we see in the interaction that's going on with Jesus, there's this back and forth that's going on. Jesus is offering her spiritual water, but she can't get past the idea of physical, immediate water that she needs. And then as she's listening to Jesus talk, she, you know, her interest is peaking. He's gaining a little bit more credibility. And then in verse 15, she's like, well, you know, maybe he's on to something. 
Maybe this, this salesman is offering me free water that's close to home, and I never have to leave home again. This is working out better than I expected, but she's still not getting it. And so Jesus, he does this often. He cuts right to the heart. And in verse 16, he says, go and get your husband. She replies, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And then you hear the room silent and you hear the whisper. Did he really just say blessed are the dead? Did Jesus really say that? This was a bold move by Jesus. Some would say too bold. Some would think inappropriate or that he's prying into the woman's life. And she's taken back as, as many of us would be too. And given being placed in that same situation, we would have been taken back. And her response to this is something that's all familiar to all of us. She deflects the uncomfortable focus off of her situation and onto the hot-button theological issue of the day. Let's talk about that instead. But remember that Jesus had a reason to interact with this woman. He didn't come all the way to talk about, well, let's talk about, you know, what kind of water you prefer. And after a few minutes, okay, it seems like we're talking in circles. Let's just table this conversation for later. No, he didn't do that. He came with the purpose of seeing her life transformed from the inside out. And so um, I'm going to give kind of a silly example, um, but it kind of gets the point across, so just, you know, follow me here. So let's just say, right, that you go and you see a doctor because you've got a broken leg, right? And you go and see the doctor. The doctor's like, okay, come on in. Let's take a look at your broken leg. And then you say to him, no, no, I, I think I'm fine. I'm, I'm all good. Instead, I think I'd rather talk about why you chose to paint your office blue. I mean, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? That'd be crazy. And then on the other side of that, let's say that another scenario, let's say the doctor was there when you actually broke your leg, right? He was there when it happened. And he runs up and he does a quick diagnosis and he's like, I think your leg is broken. And you say, well, I think you're being a little insensitive. I think you're being a little inappropriate and you're prying into my life. No, you wouldn't say that. That's crazy. You would say, thank goodness that you're here. Take me wherever you want to take me. I'll go with you. That's what you would say. And so likewise, likewise, a sick and broken soul cannot be healed without getting to the root of the problem. Jesus wasn't condemning the woman or trying to guilt her into submission. He was instead convicting her of her need for a savior. But she deflected instead. If Jesus is to have all of our worship and not part of it, then he can't have just the bright and shiny Jesus type. Likewise, 
we can't pick and choose the pieces of Jesus that we like that does not interrupt our daily lives. Does any earthly thriving relationship work in that manner? Do you know of any relationship that works like that? In Matthew 22, verse 37, this is a passage, a commandment that we all know very well. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Some of you might say, well, that's just for the Christians, or that's for the super, super committed, the loyal ones, the faithful ones. But I would say to you, as I mentioned before, the problem isn't knowing how to worship. Worship is written in our DNA. Our hearts are already seeking to elevate something, seeking to admire something, seeking to look for the hero seeking to idolize, seeking to give ultimate value or worth to something. And Jesus is reaching out to us in the same manner as the Samaritan woman to shift our already worshiping hearts from what's right in front of us and positioning it back on him where it always belongs in the first place. For the woman, her idol was multiple relationships and what she was receiving for them, from them. If you're a guy here tonight, maybe for you it's multiple relationships with women. It might be money. It might be status or power. It might be this deep desire to belong or a deep desire to be envied. Well, whatever, whatever it is, unless we're willing to take down the idols in our heart and replace it with Jesus, then he can never have all of our worship. He will only be a part of our life, but he won't be our life. But here's the good news. Jesus tonight is at your well today, if you can see it. He's asking you Go and get your fill-in-the-blank-for-yourself well. That's just draining the life out of you. Place it on the altar. Smash it. Trade it for a well. Trade it for a spring that is fresh. Trade it for water that won't stop coming out. Trade it for living water that, that I can give you. And so finally... Point four, real worship is a bubbling spring. Jesus tells us that when we drink of living water, it will become a fresh bubbling spring from within. And so I wanted to end tonight by answering two questions about this. And the two questions that I had uh, that I want to answer about the bubbling spring is first, first is how do we drink of living water, which then becomes a spring? And the second question is, what does a bubbling spring look like in us? And so to the first question, Jesus answers how we drink of this living water. And 
And how he answers this is the way that he responds to the woman's diversion on where to worship. Jesus says in verse 23 that the time is here and now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth are what John Piper, pastor and professor, uh, who wrote a book called Desiring God. This is what, spirit and truth is what he calls the how and the whom of worship. He writes this, how and whom are crucial, not where. Worship must be vital and real in the heart, and worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of worshiping in merely external ways. It's the opposite of empty formalism and traditionalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Worship must have heart and head. Worship must engage emotions and thoughts. Jesus was engaging the Samaritan woman at both the head and the heart level throughout the entire conversation. At the head level, Jesus was challenging her about what kind of water she actually needed. He also challenged her on the how and the whom of worship, not where. And at the heart level, Jesus challenges before her, convicts her of her idol that she needs to smash before the throne of God. And then, miraculously, there's a point in the story when it all clicks for her. Head, heart, spirit, truth, it all comes together. And that's when verse 26, when Jesus declares to her, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've been looking for. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. In that moment, she drank of living water for the first time, and her spiritual eyes were opened. She no longer cared about physical water that she was fixated on earlier. So in worship, she drops her bucket, and then she runs back to the village. So the second question that I want to answer is, what does the spring look like in us? And we know what the spring looks like in us because we can see what the spring looked like in her. Jesus, when Jesus told her that he was the Messiah, her heart position changed toward him. And Jesus made a promise to her that we see being fulfilled in the passage. He promised that when she drinks of the living water, it will become this spring bubbling up in her that will pour out. And how do we know this? Well, we look at what she does. She drops the very bucket that she was carrying each and every day by herself at noontime. She drops it. And she runs toward the people that she had been avoiding this entire time and who had been avoiding her as well. And then when she gets to the village, she says the words, come and see a man who told me everything that I did. 
Now, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that the whole reason that she was alone in the first place? Because she was spreading her, because news was spreading around somehow about what she ever did, all that she did. So what in the world would cause her to spread around this horrible news? Well, it's because Jesus was now first in her heart. And in repentance, she laid it before him at the drop of a bucket. And when she did that, there was no one else that could hold anything against her anymore. She knew that she was loved and that she was accepted no matter what anyone would say or do. But it just wasn't that. It wasn't just the love of her new savior, but it's a spring that keeps pouring out. And the spring caused her to love the people that rejected her and that she rejected as well. She was loving them by saying to them, by sharing the news, come and see. I know that we've been avoiding each other the whole time, but I don't want for us to be alone anymore. Come and see this man who told me everything that I did. Could he be, could he be the Messiah? But she wasn't the only one, and she wasn't the last one to love the ones that rejected her. On the cross, as Jesus was being crucified, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they believe. Jesus, even in the face of death, was a spring of life, continuing to pour out, continuing to love the people that were killing him at that very moment. And when he did that, while doing so, he bore the sin of the entire world that we may be given that eternal life, that we may be given that living water. And so I ask for some of you here tonight, won't you place your source of worship, your trust in him today? If we keep bowing down before things that don't eternally satisfy, we will only keep bowing down in hopes that it will, but it won't because it won't last. Put your trust in him. Drink of the living water that he has paid for on the cross and offers to you today. Become that spring of eternal life.